This week on Happy Sad Confused, Edgar Wright on Baby Driver, Cool Directors, and a Marvel movie that shall not be named. Hey guys, I'm Josh Horowitz. Welcome to my podcast. I'm flying solo this week. Sammy's not around for the moment. Don't worry, she'll be back next week. Stop your conspiracy theories. It's okay. Um, But I'm not entirely alone, of course, because coming up on this week's show, uh, one awesome director, Mr. Edgar Wright, uh, is in the house, or he was in the house until a second ago when he just left. Uh, We had a great conversation about his new film, Baby Driver. Uh, if you love movies, if you love Edgar, you obviously know about this one. But to uh, put it simply, it's kind of an action musical in a weird way, starring Ansel Elgort and John Hamm and Jamie Foxx and Kevin Spacey. Uh, it's a blast. It's uh, now out in theaters. You should check it out. Uh, support actual in original uh, filmmaking as opposed to franchises. Those are fine too, but it's it's cool to support a cool director like um, Edgar. Uh, we cover a lot in this conversation. Edgar is somebody that um, lives and breathes movies as much and clearly probably more than I do and um, knows all the players, knows like every significant filmmaker it seems in the last couple decades and has befriended them. We swap stories about some of the greats uh, and yeah, we talk uh, about we, – yeah, we do talk a little bit about Ant-Man. We don't call it Ant-Man in this interview. It's the Marvel movie. It's the movie that shall not be named and yeah, we, we deal with a little bit of what went down on that and he's very uh, open and honest about sort of um, how that went down and kind of lessons learned. Um, but the focus, as I said, is really just – this is a big film geek out session and I think anyone that's a fan of movies in general and Edgar specifically should enjoy this one. So I'm going to leave the preamble really brief today because we want to get to the main event. Uh, enjoy this conversation with Edgar Wright and again, check out Baby Driver. It's out in theaters right now. My late night voice. Oh, the soothing tones of <laughs> Edgar Wright, master director. Whispering Bob Harris. That was the name <laughs> of a British DJ. Is that right? Yeah. Um, it's such a pleasure to welcome Mr. Edgar Wright. That's my podcast voice, Edgar. What's your podcast voice? This is my late night radio voice. It's, it's, so a, it's made slightly huskier by not having slept enough. <laughs> We're going to keep Edgar up for the next 45 minutes. That's my only task, not to entertain you guys out there, just to keep Edgar Wright awake. I know. I feel if I like if I if I wasn't doing interviews or podcasting, I would like dissolve into a pile of Nespresso pods. <laughs> you you stink of espresso. There were smells <laughs> in the world. Um, I was just saying, congratulations, man, on the movie. It's Thank a, you. It's a great piece of work. Thank so, you. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, I, I know you must be kind of going through kind of like a split um, experience right now in the last few weeks where like uh, my sense is you you enjoy obviously talking about the movie and interacting with fans and, and critics and audiences and doing the Q&As at the same time, the body wants to die. <laughs> so but but it, are, are you still getting kind of like a rush out of each and every one of these Q&As and just like seeing the what the reaction is to this one? Because it's obviously a crowd pleaser. Well, it's a funny thing is I sort of have to pinch myself that the film exists because I haven't quite got it through my into my head that this is a movie that's coming out and not just a movie that I've been talking about for like years on end. So it is that funny thing that I see every now. It, I don't honestly know what I'm going to do once it's out because it feels like sort of the culmination of um, just so much like thinking time over the years. I mean, this movie. The initial um, spark of the idea goes back before Shaun of the Dead and Spaced. So it's funny sometimes when some critics say, oh, it's a departure from the other movies. And I was thinking, well, it's actually like an older idea than the other movies. So, yeah. I, you know, sometimes when you've had like an idea for something, and I'm sure a lot of people who um, 
you know, want to get into film, have this thing where you start to feel like the boy who cried wolf with a movie. And so I've honestly been think, talking or thinking about this for so many years that the fact that it's actually in cinemas <laughs> blows my mind, <laughs> let alone anybody else. Yeah, if for nothing else, at least you got this out of your system. And the bonus is it's super entertaining and everybody's loving it. Like, that's the gravy. <laughs> no, I couldn't be prouder of the movie. And uh, I'm I'm very excited for people to see it. So was was this one that I mean you talk about how far back it goes? Was this the kind of project that you were always kind of noodling with coming back to, or was there like was there a completed like when was there a completed screenplay that at the time you thought like I'm ready to direct this? Um, I finished the first draft of the screenplay before the world's end. It was just around that time where I wrote sort of two screenplays in a row. And not just because I'd taken the advance on both five years before, but um, <laughs> maybe four years before. No, I, I, I first started talking to Work and Title about it in 2007. And then I went off and made Scott Pilgrim. And then after Scott Pilgrim, I started writing both Baby Driver and The World's End. And um, so I had a, a draft of it in 2011. I very, <laughs> this is absolutely true. I've never told this story before. But I very, very deliberately finished the draft before Drive came out in the cinema <laughs> because I was watching. Just worried about what that was going to be. Well, or what? The, the, this is the absolute truth: is that that movie is produced by the producers of Scott Pilgrim, so it was so close to home, and I knew it was sort of coming. And I remember saying to Adam Siegel, who's the producer of Drive, I said, "Hey, I have a Getaway Driver film," and um, but I knew that my even though I hadn't seen the film yet at that point, I knew that what I was doing was different, even if. For both movies, the jumping off point is Walter Hill's 1978 sure. movie, The Driver. It might, you know, I knew my movie is like, well, my movie is like a car chase movie powered by music. So even though it has a getaway driver in it, they're two very different movies. I was still nervous about that movie until I saw it. And then I thought, oh, this is a different thing. This is like a film noir, yes. like a neo-noir and much more of a sort of character mood piece. Um, and mine is more like sort of, you know, going in, a Blues Brothers direction. <laughs> right, exactly. So I and think sort of the, the, the fact that it was tonally very different and also as it ended up being like six years apart was was good. Ansel does not wear a, a scorpion a jacket. His wardrobe's very impressive, but there's no satin scorpion he that I saw. He does not kick a man to death in an <laughs> elevator. <laughs> Stay through the end credits, though. You never know. <laughs> Did, what about, um, I mean, again, apples and oranges, but I know you're as big a fan as I, I think, of, the, of this one, but Mad Max Fury Road. When you saw that one... Oh. It's amazing. Uh, insane. And obviously what he was able to do with, again, kind of reinventing, I mean, to call it almost the car chase is almost to like minimalize what he was able to do in that one. But With that, that one to me, like Mad Max Fury Road is like George Miller basically doing the 2015 version of The General. It's like so taking something like Buster Keaton's The General or John Ford's Stagecoach to its its like futuristic limit. Yeah. And I was very lucky actually that whilst I was prepping Baby – I met George Miller for the first time because we share a sound mixer. Um, Julian Slater, who's done all of my movies, was doing Fury Road. And he said, oh, I'm working with George Miller at the moment. Would you like to meet him? He's a fan of yours. I was like, uh, yeah, <laughs> yes, I'd like to meet Dr. George Miller. So I had dinner with George before I'd seen Mad Max. And then they asked me if I would moderate a Q&A for Mad Max with George. I was like, of course. And this was all before I'd seen the movie. Then I saw the movie. I was like, oh, boy, what a masterpiece. So I was in the great position to sort of, A, interview George on stage, and then B, dinner afterwards, like, pick his brains further. And he was somebody, there was a couple of directors that I picked their brains about car chases before shooting Baby Driver, and George Miller was one of them. And um, 
So I've been lucky enough to kind of get Doctor's Surgery with George, and he's seen the movie and he really loves it. Amazing. Um, so that was kind of incredible. Have you? Ever, I know. I mean, you know, it seems like you kind of know every cool director out there, and there, there's a lot of mutual. Who have I never met? Well, no, I'm curious about. I've that. never met Brian De Palma. Is that right? Never met Brian De Palma. I've, I've met huge De Palma. Brian De... Got one. Ah, what? <laughs> he's a scary guy. He's an intimidating dude. I know. I, I some, I've never met Woody Allen. Um, Woody's been on the podcast. Really? I know. Big moment for me, Edgar. Big I have moment. not heard that one. How have I heard that one? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. But did he? He didn't do Happy Sad Confused. No, I'm I, sure. I, ev- I'm I sure could, everyone is confused. I couldn't Allen. bring him to, to even ask him. He's just—it's too much. It would have been blown my brain away. But uh, yeah, it would be with Woody Allen. It would be anxious, confused, <laughs> and downbeat. <laughs> I don't get happy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> physically impossible. Um, what about? Because I, I know uh, Raising Arizona is obviously. Obviously, a bit of an influence. Was that the first Cohen Brothers movie that kind of blew your mind away? Was that the first one you saw? Or? I think it's. I think it's probably the first one I saw. Yeah. Um, yes. I mean, I. Well, what's funny is that we. I mean, I do know Joel and Ethan because we share a producer. Because Eric Fellner, who produced Baby Driver and Sean and Hot Fuzz and The World's End, produces a lot of Joel and Ethan's movies. So, I actually Joel came to see the movie the other day. Um, which was great. I mean, I'm such huge fans of them. I mean, I'm now still trying to think which directors I haven't met and that, which ones that you can lord over me that you have. Well, wait, I want to hear about – so what would you want to talk to De Palma about? I'm a huge De Palma fan uh, as well. What's your – Well, sometimes there's those people. Sometimes you don't want to meet your heroes because you think sort of like, oh, I don't want them to think I'm not cool <laughs> or like sort of not being impressive in a way. Like I met Martin Scorsese once for about 30 seconds and like – it was it was great, but the first thing he said to me, I was, I was, and I had no idea, and I still don't whether he's ever even seen anything that I've done, because the introduction went like this: is like said, "Oh, uh, Martin, oh Marty, this is Edgar Wright. He directed Shaun of the Dead." And Michael says, "Do you ever see a film called uh, The Return of Doctor X with Humphrey Bogart?" <laughs> and I was like, uh, "No." He goes, "Great movie. It's a zombie movie. It's a great." And then he starts telling me the synopsis of this movie, and then my like thirty seconds is up, and it's like, "Ah, oh, I admitted to him that I hadn't seen a movie." Well, then now he, got, he thinks I'm not cool. If you had said yes, then you're down a really scary rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> but you're right. Your your relationship with Marty might have changed on a dime if just at some point in your past you'd seen that damn Return of Doctor X. I know. I just thought. Maybe Maybe, I don't know if he's ever seen any of my movies, but I'm sure, like, the only thing he remembers about me is that I haven't seen The Return of Dr. X. <laughs> oh, yeah, Edgar Wright, the guy that hasn't seen that good zombie movie. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the first filmmaker of, like, uh, that you kind of worshipped that you got to know, like, when you started to, like... Make... I think the first person who, um, like, I would say, after Shaun of the Dead, that, like, made the world smaller was George Romero. Like, I think he was the first person that we reached out to after we'd made the movie, we sort of asked you wanted a the blessing studio. Of some sort yeah, a little bit. we just thought like, you know, I thought we, it was, and it was taking a kind of bit of a gamble because that doesn't always work in terms of, um, you know, you're you're doing something that's like a homage to somebody, and they might love it or they might hate it or they might even just refuse to watch it. But George Romero watched the movie in Florida. I think he was on holiday, and Universal arranged for him to watch it in Florida. And the one funny. Uh, detail about that that I thought was he was he watched it on his own in a multiplex somewhere in the Florida Keys and it was him and a universal security guard watching the movie and I was thinking what are you worried that George Romero is going to pirate the movie I mean even if he did he he in, uh, technically he's entitled to some of our residuals because right. the movie wouldn't exist without him so he was probably the first person because then he called us um 
afterwards, we got like both me and Simon separately got a phone call from George Romero, which wow. was just like amazing. So I think he was probably the first person that I like a big fan of that I actually met through my work. And and is there anybody that you've befriended at this point that still you kind of have a trouble disassoci- disassociating like twelve year old Edgar when you're when you're talking to them when you're still thinking like oh my god oh my god I'm talking to George Miller like are are, are there certain ones of those or are you able to get past that and talk to them as a as a colleague at this point generally speaking? Well, I think it's funny, like so I would have said that about. You know, it's funny with somebody like the Coens is like, I would have said that about them. But that what is funny is like, oh, I guess we share a producer now, you know, and like sort of, and they couldn't be, I mean, you know this, you've interviewed them yeah. and stuff. But I mean, it's also those people that's funny, like sort of that kind of have an enigmatic air in public, like Christopher Nolan or the Coen brothers. Right. That, and in actually in sort of private, they're actually sort of like down to earth and gossipy and silly and, and kind of all those things. I mean, there's lots of people that I kind of like, I mean, I still kind of like, uh, I don't know, like something like Sam Raimi was yeah. like when I was a teenager, it was like a hero of mine. And so just to kind of like hang out with him is still like sort of like, oh, this is like, and I sometimes it's that thing like sort of you don't know, um, you know, another example would be, I mean, what I was going to say about Sam Raimi was you, you, I find that like he's so modest that like I have to really impress upon him how much he means to me. And I finally did it. I was doing a Q&A for Evil Dead 1 and 2. And um, it was with him and Bruce Campbell. And I thought, now I've actually got them captive in front of an audience. I'm going to tell them what they mean to me in front of like 500 people because then they can't like sort of <laughs> squirm, squirm out of it. <laughs> yeah. And it was really nice. It was great. I mean, I guess the other person that I've actually worked for, which is another sort of pinch me kind of moment, obviously is Steven Spielberg. Sure. And um, Tintin, me yeah. and Joe Cornish wrote on Tintin. And in fact, I saw him the other day because he's seen Baby Driver and he couldn't have been more complimentary about it. And I was like, what about the last five minutes that rips off Sugarland Express? I was just going to say. <laughs> <laughs> but he, he liked that and like sort of, I mean, you know, those, those things, they're, like, they're just kind of amazing. I don't really know what to say. Yeah. It's all good. Somebody, a journalist said to me the other day, they said, um, a journalist said to me the other day, she goes, on your Wikipedia page under personal life, there is not a single fact that doesn't revolve around films. And I was like, you know, I don't write that page, right? <laughs> you know that there's maybe more to me than like that. Impossible. Just my, my pers- like the personal life bit in my um, right. in my. Wikipedia page. But I like the idea that people think that you write your IMDb page or trivia page. <laughs> you can always tell a lazy interviewer when their questions are just your IMDb, IMDb trivia, trivia page in, yep. in order. It's happened to me like three times. <laughs> and as soon as somebody says like, tell me about your brother, Oscar. <laughs> okay. He's a storyboard artist. And he goes, is it true that you're a fan of action films? Somebody asked me that the other day and I said, I said, you've seen Baby Driver, right? <laughs> okay, two guesses. I have a, I have a, I have, this is, this absolutely happened to me in an interview the other day. And this is going to head off one of your questions. But like, <laughs> an interviewer was talking about the movie, and then they said it was a German interviewer, and he said, he said, obviously in the news recently, we've read about um, lots of terrorist incidents with terrorists um, oh, yeah. taking control of vans and plowing right. them into pedestrians on bridges. And uh, how do you feel about the, the violence in your film, the depiction of violence in your film with, with this in the news? And I said, well, I said, if you watch my movie, I think that you, you'll you see that it has a very moral ending. You know, there is a sort of a strong sort of like moral comeuppance of some decisions and like the idea of taking responsibility for your actions. 
which means that you're not just kind of condoning this kind of like um, mayhem. And that's really important. And it was important for me to have, you know, like sort of, you know, have a crime doesn't pay message, but also the plot of the movie like revolves around the character taking responsibility sure. for his actions. So I think I answered that question okay. And then the next question he said, he goes, and next question he goes, would you be interested in doing a superhero movie? And I said, no, I said, you can't ask that question and then do a 180. You lose the right, to, so you lose the the right to ask the superhero question. If you'd done it the other way around, fine. If you didn't do that, you can't go really heavy with right. like new, uh, like a terrorist question and then go into, so would you direct The Flash? It's like, no, I'm not answering that question. I'm sorry. So that's, I actually refuse to answer the question. That's amazing. That's why I'm, I don't bother with the terrorism questions. I, just, <laughs> I know. <laughs> I, I want At the least the thing is like, so consistency. Like, listen, it's just easier to talk about would you do a Star Wars movie would you do a superhero movie than getting into like sort of um, uh, getting into uh, that <laughs> but I just thought like sort of I'm sorry you are not allowed to do that, that U-turn I, I respect that um, I know this film wasn't initially set in Atlanta I like that you did do that you decided to like give it a very specific and I, and I, when I was thinking when I was thinking about that like all of your films have a very specific grounded whatever location you've chosen for it like you own that location Um and, and just give me a sense, is that something that that's part and parcel for you in making just like a, a solid story? And give me a sense of sort of like how you had to adapt this one particularly to uh, the environs of Atlanta. Well, I think one of the pleasures of, you know, um, working around the world is that you, if you're if you're working somewhere is actually becoming invested in where you're in. And Toronto and Atlanta, Toronto and Scott Pilgrim and Atlanta and Baby Driver, they're both cities that rarely play themselves. And I always think when I watch those movies, I, I like I I wouldn't have gone to Atlanta unless I'd set it there. The idea of trying to make Atlanta look like Los Angeles is just like right. it's just a joke. And like you you know, I, I just I, I don't know. It just makes me sort of feel like sort of it's like such a huge amount of brain power trying to make a city look like another city and not succeeding. Yes. Sometimes it kind of works. You know, say so like a good example would be something like the movie Spotlight which is shot in Toronto and Boston, but they totally pull off, yep. you know, the feeling that you're in Boston. It never takes you out of it. You're it never, never like, oh, that's probably not really yeah. Boston. But like, Atlanta, I mean, I wrote the movie in Los Angeles because that's the city I knew the most. But then when, you know, Atlanta sort of came up as an option, and, you know, to be completely frank, as a sort of a less prohibitively, sure. prohibitively expensive option, um, I thought, well, maybe I should try and reset it here. So I actually, and I'd only ever really been to Atlanta like on press tours. And also I was going to make <clears throat> another movie there in a studio. So I'd only really seen the studio. And I, and again, that movie was not supposed to be set in Atlanta. Sure. So I thought, okay, I'm gonna, if I'm going to make an Atlanta movie, I want to set it in Atlanta. Let me go to Atlanta and just kind of explore and sort of see all the things that I've never seen. And very quickly it felt right. And I, I got to say, and I'm not just saying this, but I think it, the film is better being in Atlanta than if I'd said it in Los Angeles. Totally. in Los Angeles, you're in the same city as like Heat and The Driver and Drive and To Live and Die in LA and Reservoir Dogs and Point Break and several other ones. Whereas in Atlanta, it felt like there actually hadn't been like a car chase movie made there since Smokey and the Bandit <laughs> or White Lightning and Gator. So, but also like Atlanta's an fascinating city because obviously on a sort of cultural and political level it's fascinating it's also a huge music city and it is a big still like muscle car central like you know you still get challenges and charges on every street corner 
whereas LA is all Priuses. <laughs> is there is there a location that um, you're itching to tell a story on? Is there a city or a locale that would be like that that you've like played around with, the, with in your brain, even if you haven't come up with a story yet? Like, oh, it'd be kind of cool too, because obviously you've never shot here in New York. This was no, the first I mean, States. yeah, I mean, yeah, obviously New York and LA are like amazing places to kind of like set something. I think, I mean, San Francisco is the other one. Right. I mean, San Francisco, which back in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s was like the place to shoot, is now another one that's like much more expensive than it used to be, which is a shame because I, some of my favorite movies are set in San Francisco and it's like such a beautiful, beautiful place and an interesting, dramatic location. From Vertigo to Mrs. Doubtfire. I mean, everything in between. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, <laughs> yeah. the Dirty Harry series, yep. um, Bullets, obviously. Did you mention Bullet already? I didn't. Um, for some reason, I'm what's going, up, Doc? I'm going to start Take the money for, and run. Star Trek for the voyage home. <laughs> Star Trek for the voyage home. Um, did you know that movie was supposed to originally start Eddie Murphy? Oh, believe me, I isn't know. that amazing? It's crazy. I think I asked Eddie about that once. Yeah, because I'm so fascinated by that one. Um, what that would have been insane. Star Trek for the Golden Child. I love the Golden Child. <laughs> you know what? I mean, love is I a strong saw, word. I like the Golden Child. <laughs> I saw the Golden Child when it first came out, and when I was twelve, I loved it. I'm not sure. I tried to watch a bit of it on Netflix the other day, and I wasn't so sure. It's probably culturally insensitive. It's too, no would, big trouble in Little China, that's I mean, for sure. Come on. Um, I was. I'm convinced. Did you hear about how they're doing like a comic book? John Carpenter is writing a like a sequel comic to Big Trouble in Little China. I didn't know that. Um, and I, someone, I'm not going to take credit for this, but someone made the point on Twitter the other day that like if you tried to kickstart a sequel to Big Trouble in Little China, John Carpenter would have like a $60 million budget in a week. I'm convinced of it. Do you think that he uh, – uh, yeah. I think so. – I mean it's, well, here's what's interesting about some of those movies is that um, – I mean it is incredible like when you – I'm not necessarily saying it's a good idea, but I do think that there's a – where there's a will – I think there's – there's an appetite for anything now that we, we grew up with in the 80s or 90s, it seems. Well, it's so funny. I mean, what's funny to me is that I remember that movie, I remember being the only person in the cinema when I saw it. And in <laughs> fact, if you look at like Box Office Mojo, like Big Trouble in the China like, opened at number 12. It yeah. opened outside the top 10, which given the, the love that it has now seems kind of insane that that movie was not like even a, a, a semi-hit at the time. Yeah. But what's funny though as well, I mean, having seen like Kurt Russell in the Guardians of the Galaxy, yeah, I kind of feel like Kurt Russell has still got a sparkle in his eye mm -hmm. that many other actors his age do not have. Totally. So I kind of feel like if you if did a big travel in China, it should be with old Kurt Russell. Oh, absolutely. Yes, absolutely. I mean, there's one in development with like, I mean, I love Dwayne Johnson and I'm sure he'll make something entertaining, but you're right. Like, I kind of want the original Jack Burton. I mean, listen, you know Woody Allen. We could get this made immediately. <laughs> I don't know if Woody's the guy. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, okay. Um, so, okay, so you you alluded to that other little thing in Atlanta you were going to do, and we talked many times going into it. You probably hated it every time I mentioned it beforehand, and now you hate it that I'm mentioning it after the fact. As long as we don't mention the words. Okay, sort of, do you want like, to just avoid sort of, like, the actual movie title? You want to just yeah, it's, it's, okay. it, it could be it's like my Voldemort, like the okay. movie that should not be named. Okay, it's a deal. Okay, so when... <laughs> okay, a couple questions. When... It fell apart when mm. whatever we, whatever we want to call it. How how long did you spend in the corner like wailing? I mean that's got that's a blow. I mean how long did it take? Because Baby Driver came pretty quickly after that. You got it going. The truth of the matter is, it was like sort of like an amputation, where it was an immediate relief because I knew in my gut that it wasn't didn't quite feel right. And then the really the sort of breaking point, which has sort of been, you know, which is true, which is kind of like sort of reported, is that. 
they wanted to do a draft without me and Joe. And having worked on it for eight years and being a writer-director on everything else I've done, you know, I basically said, well, show me the draft. But I knew even as I was waiting for the draft, which was supposed to take two weeks and end up taking six weeks. So then I had like six weeks of thinking time. And by this point, I had spoken to lots of my director friends and nearly all of them told me to do what I was thinking of doing anyway, which is like, well, you should walk and do your own thing. Yeah. So it was a tough decision. The toughest thing about it was just, and I don't, re- I do not regret not doing, I don't regret not doing the movie at all. I regret the time wasted. And that's right. the biggest bummer. It's just like, and, and not just for me, but for Joe Cornish. It's just like, he particularly is like, he's just getting his next movie going right now. I was going to say, we still haven't seen another director it's coming. the block. It's coming. Okay. He's actually shooting it this autumn for, um, <laughs> for US listeners. <laughs> we know um, what, you know, what autumn is. For. Yeah, okay. So basically, and I won't say who because I don't want to. I'm already a terrible name dropper, and I. But one of one of like my one director friend of mine said something. He said he goes, "Listen, there's going to be there's always going to be more Marvel movies, but only you can make the next Edgar Wright movie." Right. And I was like, "Yes, I agree." And so, really, you know, um, you know, the the positive things about it. I will say this: uh, like, I got my friend Paul Rudd a job, and uh, <laughs> a, few, a few jobs, a few jobs. <laughs> And we're still friends, and that's important to me. Yeah. And and the people, the heads of department that left the film in solidarity to me, I eventually got them a job on Baby Driver. I basically made Baby Driver with the crew that I was going to work with in Atlanta, like doing a completely different film. The only thing, the toughest thing for me, so it wasn't a wailing thing in terms of wailing walking away from the movie. To be honest, the toughest thing about it was like I said to my agent like just afterwards, and by the way, they were all in agreement with me. And I mean, it's the thing is like sort of You were like, trying to make a situation that you could see going south work. but It, it, it wasn't it, so much going south. It's more like sort of, you know, like I respect that they have their sort of their continuity process, yeah, and their sure, brand yeah, and everything. Yeah. But it's the thing where it's like if I'm, if I'm just a director for hire on this, I don't really know what I'm doing. Right. You know, so I think there's a thing is like to do one of those movies – I have to be completely emotionally invested. Otherwise, I'm starting to sort of wonder why I'm there. So I sort of said that before is that I wanted to make a Marvel movie, but I don't think they really right. wanted to make an Edgar Wright movie. And I think that's the most diplomatic answer. And, um, you know, but I'm happy for Paul Rudd and we're still very good friends. What did you say to Paul when this was all going down? That was – there were some tough phone calls. It was tough because, I mean, he, he knew that it was, like, tough for me. So that was kind of hard for sure. And, um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is also what, I mean, the toughest thing for me, the toughest thing was I said to my agent, I said, I said, I'm going to be okay as long as I'm making a movie by the time that one comes out. Right. And I still wasn't making Baby Driver when that came out. So that was the, that was the toughest part was actually like a year later because then Baby Driver was sort of happening, but maybe not happening. And it's that tough thing, especially when you're in LA trying to get something going, and because, like, Brits are generally, like, sort of self-deprecating and, like, glass half-empty people, there's always that thing, like, American directors say, like, well, when I make this movie, and British directors say, well, if I if I make Baby Driver, <laughs> so we say, when, when you make Baby Driver, say, yeah, no, so if I make, when I make Baby Driver, <laughs> like, so. You're secreting it into the universe. So, so it wasn't really until, like, October 2015 that then, like, we got the green light. Right. And to be honest, that was actually sort of like everybody had been really excited about the script, but 
any original movie is just like really tough to get made. So it eventually becomes like the sheer momentum of like actors on the project now. And I think to be honest, it's like once kind of like Kevin and Jamie came on as well, and it's like, okay, now we got Antelope, got Lily James, um, John Hamm, Kevin Spacey, Jamie Foxx, and then it's like, okay, this is a go. This is gonna work, yeah. And, so, and I have to say, by the way, like on a, to mention a few of those, I, I can't think of someone that in a film has used John as effectively. I feel like the, no one's been able to crack what to do with the John Hamm. Like he well, what's so funny much. is, I John is the one member of the cast I've known the longest because I, funny enough, I met John when he was hosting SNL for the first time. I'm friends with uh, Bill Hayden, name drop, and uh, <laughs> a lot of name drop in. Um, we started with me saying I had Woody Allen on the podcast. You're okay. <laughs> That's pretty good. Okay. I can't believe I missed that one. Oh my God. Um, but I so I met John at the after party of his first SNL. I know the longest. What's funny is I did write it with him in mind. And I think John is always like sort of, um, is always bemused by that because it's like he wrote it with me in mind and I play a psycho. <laughs> like, um, <laughs> but he's amazing. He's amazing I mean, he's amazing in it. I think John's fantastic and it was so. Um, I, when I finished the first draft of the script, I did a read-through in, like, 2012 at the offices in Working Title in Los Angeles. And, you know, with read-throughs, you kind of bring in, like, actors who are just available to come and read. John was the only person at that table who's still in the movie. So that was kind wow. of something. And I'm playing the same part as well. So uh, one one more uh movie that shall not be named question. I'm just, I heard you haven't seen that movie. Um, the closest I came is that somebody on the plane next to me was watching it. <laughs> so does that extend to like when that character appears in other movies? Like, is that- Oh no, I did actually, I, I, this is absolutely true. I said to like Paul the other day, I said, he knows that I haven't seen, I, I not only have I not seen the movie, I've never seen the trailer. <laughs> wow. I, I, it's a lot of strength. Cause I know you're, and you're, you like to consume media. You like to, you like to be in it. It's a very, Clever thing you do, Josh. And if anybody else is in a so similar a tip, situation, yeah. here's, so my tip for Phil and Chris is that you, if you go to the movies, <laughs> just go to the concession line and skip all the trailers. But the trailers are so great. They're yeah, so no, fun. but you can skip them for four months. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I did. That's because I thought I never want to be sitting. I never want to be sitting in a full arc light, uh, and then like people like turn around to me and go, mm, <laughs> "What do you think?" So I you know what Josh Horowitz tweeting just saw I Edgar absolutely, watching. The... <laughs> absolutely managed to totally avoid it completely. Um, and that was kind of amazing. The closest I came was that somebody on the plane next to me started watching it. And I was thinking, mm, I might do some emails. <laughs> like... <laughs> Suddenly I'm very focused. <laughs> All right, so, some hot buttons. Oh, wait, what I was going to say. Oh, yeah, yeah. The one thing I said to Paul is I said, I haven't seen the movie, but you are very funny in Civil War. <laughs> Um, some hot button movie issues. I want your take on this. Okay, sure. Okay. Um, Avatar. I mean, can James Cameron do no wrong? Do we need four more movies? Whatever James wants goes. Give me your. What's your take on that? Okay, this is controversial, but it's not anything that. Uh, but but I would say I love James Cameron, and I just feel like I want him to do some more movies and not just something that I've already seen him do for the next five years. So I don't know what to say. Is I I'm interested to see what's next because here's the thing I'd say about James Cameron. I know that something big is coming because I don't think James Cameron does anything unless he feels he can completely rewrite the rule book. So I'm sure whatever he has in mind from Avatar on some kind of technical scale is going to be mind-blowing. But rewriting it but, four different times? Like, you know what I mean? Well, <laughs> I just feel, you know, sometimes with directors that you love their work, 
you know, and I, I actually rewatched Aliens last year when it was the 20th anniversary screening. So I was like, what an it's amazing kind of a perfect movie. movie. Yeah. What an amazing <laughs> movie that is. And I love Alien as well, but like Aliens, yeah. they're both great. And it's like, that is that is a perfect, like, popcorn movie. That movie is perfect. Yep. So I kind of feel like, oh, I just want to see him do some other stuff as well. If he sort of said, which he hasn't, if he said, like, I'm going to do four more avatars and then that's it, I'd be like, oh, that's a bummer because I want to see you do some other stuff. Right. Speaking of which, Daniel Day-Lewis, is he going to stay retired? I don't know. Is he cobbling again? I don't know. <laughs> Have you ever met Daniel Day-Lewis? No, I've been in the same room as him. I mean, he's one of those people who, like, I mean, I'm excited for the new movie. Is it called The Phantom Thread? Is that's, that what it's that's called? That's what I hear, yeah, yeah. Um, and I know, uh, but I, I've never met him, no. I mean, I've been in the same room as him a couple of times. But, I mean, I'm a huge fan. I'd like to think that maybe that's not true or it's just how he's feeling at the moment. I don't know. Yeah. I've met him just the same. Has he been on the podcast? No, of course not. But I interviewed him, but that's not. Yeah, his, the, his version of Happy, Sad, Confused was enigmatic, <laughs> enigmatic, enigmatic. He's a genius. Uh, your buddy Quentin, is he really going to do 10 and out? Is he going to do 10 films? Do you guys talk about his like plan of... Uh... I think he's sincere when he says that. Yeah. And I understand it like because um, I, think, I think he is. I think that's what his plan is, and I understand that. I don't know whether, like, um, he changed his opinion, but, like, I think, so. I mean, <laughs> I I know he's right. I know he's written something. Mm. And um, Do you know more about it that you're not going to tell me? I have not read it, so no, okay. I don't. But do you know, like, genre or anything? And I did read The Hateful Eight, and um, then when that script got leaked onto the internet, I kind of said, it wasn't me. <laughs> I said, I swear it's in my bedroom. It hasn't left my room. It wasn't me. It, it was wasn't Michael Madsen. It wasn't me. <laughs> Um, so I don't know. I think that's what he plans to, but I don't know. I mean, you know, like it's, it's difficult to say whether people change their minds about stuff like Daniel Day-Lewis might come back. You know, everybody thought Terrence Malick had gone forever. And now then he makes he, a movie a year, it seems yeah. like. <laughs> Can't stop him. So are we, okay, in the Han Solo news, the, my general question about this stuff is, are we hearing more about these things? Do they happen all the time and we're just not aware about it or, of it? Or is, because it feels like Rogue One, Han Solo, Justice League. I mean, there's like, this seems to be the sad new model for these like, tentpole movies um, and it's a little disturbing <laughs> to watch. I guess you probably do hear more about stuff now than you ever did. I mean there's things Not that like... you can hide something like this. Well but... sometimes I mean sometimes about like, older movies you find out like um, the you know directors had left halfway through like oh. Philip Kaufman was supposed to be the director on Outlaw Jesse Wales or Martin Brest was supposed to be the director on War Games. Right. I didn't really know anything about that at the time. Apparently you know? Kurt Russell basically directed Tombstone. Have you heard Is that, that right? One? Yeah. Oh, I did not know that one. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I guess, you know, there's more, um, I don't know, there's more websites about movies and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. What, what's, uh, is it time to reevaluate the prequels? I know you're, you and Simon, I've had long conversations with Simon about this. Uh, it seems like there might be a turning. I feel like there's a little bit of a turn in the film uh, internet where like, oh, yeah, let's give the prequels another chance. Wait, what are the prequels? <laughs> <laughs> um, the start. I have not. Uh, I don't know. Actually, I don't know. I haven't okay. rewatched them. Like uh, I haven't rewatched them. <laughs> That's not top of your list to go back to. Um, I think I watched the only one I saw twice was the last one. Vincent said, yeah. but I have not seen the others. What do you think Star Wars should do post Episode Nine? I were... don't know. I mean, I, I, I honestly, you know, um, I look forward to, you know. Um, 
I look forward to sort of what, I mean, what's interesting about The Force Awakens, I think, is that, like, I got to say that I think the new cast really pop. Yeah. And that's something that, like, is, you know, I, you got to give credit to JJ for that in terms of the casting and that even though you've got all those returning actors of Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill and Carrie Fisher, you know, your main, and Anthony Daniels, like, sort of, um, you know, your your main thing you take away from that is like, I want to see Daisy Ridley Absolutely. and Oscar Isaac and John Boyega again and Adam Driver, like the, all the new people. So I think sort of that I'd be interested to see where it goes. Um, I don't know what happens beyond nine. I like sort of, it's it's interesting. I, I You know, some of these things that like are your favorite franchises when you were little, I, I don't necessarily, I want to kind of just watch them. I don't right. need to kind of like get involved. I don't know. Did, did you come close? How, how close did you come on Mission? Mission was sounded like there was a little bit of talk. Oh, no, I had a meeting or... about it, um, but I couldn't really do it scheduling wise. It feels like that actually is. A, I know like you're, you know, you'd rather do kind of like your thing and have control, et cetera. But Mission of any of the franchises almost seems like one that could suit you, Mission Impossible. I just don't like that Simon Pegg guy. <laughs> I just think no, he's like sort of, you know, he's dragging he's it down. very yeah. hammy. <laughs> and even as he tries to reduce his body fat to look more like Tom Cruise, so, that doesn't make him a better actor. It makes me upset. Did it make you upset when he started <laughs> to get in shape? Well, you probably no, no, you no. contributed I have, on Hot Fuzz. You I have it. this theory about, no, he, well, on Hot Fuzz he got really lean. Um, and I have this theory, which I told Simon about, is I think that when Simon started to get in crazy shape, was after he had to share a two-shot with Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible 3. That's amazing. Because any person, I mean, I would not like to share a two-shot with Tom Cruise. You just look like a potato. So, like, so after that, Simon was then just in ridiculous shape and has been ever since. So I think that's the Tom Cruise effect. Okay. So no mission because of Peg, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Now, listen, if Peg was out of mission, I'd do it in a okay, second. Fair enough. <laughs> Have you, have you been watching Twin Peaks at all? Have you had a time? I have. I'm not up to speed. I'm one behind I have, myself. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I've, I've been loving it so far. And I just love that David Lynch is just like his own man oh, and man. so willfully, beautifully obtuse. Totally. I mean, I think that, that in this day and age of people like sort of thinking about franchise. I mean, it does have franchise continuity. That's what's amazing about it. But I just love the fact that he just follows his own muse. Clearly. And he's not kind of like... You know, because I think the thing is, is, I think you can get into dangerous territory when you, it's that thing of like, don't give the audience what they want, give right. them what they need. And like, so not many people kind of think about that because then people say like, so we're giving the fans what they want. And then it's like, people don't actually want that. They want something different. You know? Right. I mean, like eight episodes in and we haven't seen like actual Agent Cooper really yet. We've seen Dougie, who I love. <laughs> I am not quite up to speed, but okay. I've been enjoying what I've seen so far. So um, speaking of which, because I remember like you were in and we talked like in the uh, the whole spaced uh, Mick G debacle, that whole thing. Like do you own all your own – all the material? Could like yeah. Sean and everything like out of your control? Oh, or I what? think sort of on Sean and Hot Fuzz and et cetera, we have like a veto on stuff if mm -hmm. we don't want to do stuff because we've stopped – like a US TV version of like Sean or like sort of them somebody remaking Sean and it's like no no Dude, or like sort of like somebody wanted to do like a hot fuzz American TV show and I was like no I said the whole point of it is it's English it's like no right what's your do you have any relationship with Michael Bay post hot fuzz uh no I've never I met him once and I have another feeling like that he's never seen anything I've done um, oh, no, that's not true, actually. He actually, that is not true. I did actually speak to him on the phone 
about a stunt coordinator to do with Baby Driver because there was somebody that I interviewed that he had worked with a lot and we okay. had a nice conversation. I don't know whether he's ever seen anything I've done. I remember one time after Hot Fuzz, I was at a party where he was at and I introduced myself and I said, oh, I made the movie Hot Fuzz. And he said, he goes, that's with the guy from Mission Impossible, right? <laughs> and I knew at that point, I thinking, okay, so you haven't seen the movie. But um, uh, no, I, I, don't, I don't really know him that well. But he was actually, I have to say, very helpful to me about some um, stunt stuff on Baby Driver. Nice. D does um, So Baby Driver, I mean, you never clearly, like, do you have aspirations as does doing like a full-on musical? Have you ever tried to write, like, songs and lyrics, et cetera, for a film, or does that not interest you? Because this is obviously not a musical. It's a, You clearly unique... haven't seen my 1995 film, Fist for the Fingers, with oh, its I, amazing. I confess I haven't. It's an amazing song, When a Man Loves a Horse. Is that true? Um, it is true. Oh, my God. <laughs> no, I mean, have I written a song apart from that one? I mean, um, no, I mean, it's funny, like, that's come up a couple of times of would I do a musical, and I was like, if it was the right thing, yes, absolutely. I think it would be something I would feel that I'd have to kind of, like, I mean, with any genre, it's like, well, what's the story? What? It's more about what do you think you can do really well, you know? Right. So I think that's the case with everything, including the film that should not be named, is like, sort of, if you, if you look at it and think, I'm the only guy that can make this. Right then that's the reason to do it. But if you feel like somebody else could do it, then that's the time to skip off. How many ideas go back a couple decades, like Baby Driver, that are that you would potentially come back to? Are there any others that Not are... That, I mean, mostly they're things where you've got something kind of in your head and you can't really rest until you've written it down. I have this other thing at the moment which I'm sort of just wrestling with because I've, I've had the sort of the vague the basic idea of it for a while and I just need to like put it on the paper. So sometimes it's like you sort of have the vision of a movie. I remember, strangely enough, like <laughs> it's funny enough, it's complaining to Adam Siegel, who was the direct, uh, the producer of Scott Pilgrim and Drive, and I was talking to him about writing Baby Driver. And one of the toughest things about writing Baby Driver is writing the action. Yeah. Because it's something... How do you convey <laughs> that? You, it's a weird thing. Somebody said to me, was it... Was it difficult to bring the script to life? And I said, it was actually more difficult the other way around of like having this vision of how these sequences should work, but writing them down. Because writing stage directions it, uh, to be exciting on the page is like a tough, like particular skill, yeah. which weirdly enough, three people we've mentioned already do brilliantly. Like some people who write brilliant stage directions, James Cameron. Mm -hmm. Quentin Tarantino, Walter Hill. Like, Walter Hill's scripts, if you've never read the script for The Driver or The Warriors or Alien, his draft, it's extraordinary. Like, the way he writes kind of stage direction and scene description is extraordinary because he makes it really poppy. It kind of feels like you're reading beat poetry. So that's, like, a tough thing to do is to write that stuff down. So I remember saying to Adam Siegel, the producer, I said, I said, I can see the movie and I can hear the movie and I just have to write it down. <laughs> or and that's can, the toughest bit. Or you go the uh, the George Mad Miller. Max way. I was going to say George Miller. He basically did a comic book. He did a giant, like, what, thousands of storyboards, I mean, right? it's an amazing idea and I can totally see why they did that. Yeah. Because also, if you're a writer-director, you know, you're writing the stage directions down. For yourself. And you, at some point, you're thinking, <laughs> who is this for? Right. <laughs> you know? Because you know a lot of people, like, they read scripts and they skip the stage directions. Right. Is um what, what did you need to as we put a, a bow on this and let you get to sleep or onto the next thing? Um, do you find that like with every film at this point, like is there a goal in terms of like how you're expanding your own skill set? Like like out of this movie, I want to you know you'd clearly never done car chases like this, and now you you have that skill. Um, is there a sense of like what you come out of this one 
more confident in that you can bring to the next or? Yeah, I mean, I think you're always looking to add more strings to your bow in terms of what you, I mean, and also there's there's obviously like a great kind of joy in, with the, sometimes you're writing a script because you want to learn how to do something. And in a way, I think sometimes you write characters that you're living vicariously through. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So I think that's something that like, um, I will probably never be a, high, a getaway driver for a uh, like young a, man. a gang Come of bank robbers unless things go desperately <laughs> south again. Um, then you know, so you was almost like write the film where you want to learn more about this life, yeah. and then you're living vicariously through that character. It'd be the same, and even in Scott Pilgrim and stuff. Like I mean, I'm not like like a member of a band or anything. So sometimes you're sort of you know you're writing these things about. Um, particular jobs or like a slice of life that you don't know as a way of kind of experiencing it, you know. And uh, generally speaking, outside of the the film that shall, shall not be named, it's been a three year gap in between each film. That seems to be kind of like the yeah. pattern. I would like to reduce that. I was going to say. I mean, that's it, tough. I mean, you can't be like, everyone can't be the Coen Brothers, where it's like it seems like well, there's like two, one there's a year. two of them. So you know, they split. <laughs> they, they immediately. That's half the work split in half. Well, so true. like that's Joel true. and Ethan, there's two of them. <laughs> so somehow they can knock out one a year or one every two years. But it is true when you see that kind of like work rate, you know. I actually met Ridley Scott the other day, uh, name drop, Sir Ridley Scott. <laughs> and I said to him, I said, I said, I, you know, met him and I said, I love your work. I'm also like, I'm so envious yeah. of your work rate. And he said that he doesn't edit his movies or rather he lets the editor get on with it and he's prepping the next one. Because I, I saw him at the Alien Covenant premiere and it's like he goes, he goes, I start my next film in three weeks. Yeah. And I was like, I couldn't even conceive of like how that's possible. And the level of filmmaking he's doing. It's yeah, not like he's, he's doing like a 80. rom-com that's like a... Yeah, he's exactly. like 79. It's crazy. <laughs> so, uh, I, 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 you know, I think that, I mean, the, the truth of the matter is and why it takes three years is I write my movies as well. So if you write a movie as well, that's like an immediately, that's an extra year. Right. So do you have one ready to go now that you I think do. you'll do? Well, there's some stuff that I've been working on, but like I'd like to try and shoot something next year. That would be my goal. It, so I think once this is done and I've had like even just like 20 minutes power nap, <laughs> then I'll um I'll get back on the horse. Is Kolchak even on the list anymore? The, the You know, there is a really good screenplay for that, but I think it's sort of slightly um there's some tr- tricky elements to that one. But DV Divashentes, who um uh, did the People versus OJ? He actually wrote a really good script for it. Actually, yeah. but I don't know exactly the status of that one. Okay, fair enough. We'll let you get some rest, uh, man. It's always Just good to please see. Please let me go to sleep. You can stay in this podcast studio and I'm sleep the... if you want. <laughs> the chair doesn't look that comfortable. Josh, please let me go. He's got soup that's been getting cold for the last forty-five minutes. He's got. He's done with his green juice. <laughs> he's operating on fumes. People, go see Baby Driver. Bring this man back to life. Please. My life depends on it. You have to go and see my movie. You should see it, but he's going to live either way. But yes, see the movie. Bring your friends. Support Edgar Wright, people. Please. Please. He's not a book for me. He's not a (laughs) book. Do it for me. Please go and see my movie. I beg of you. My whole family is relying on you guys (laughs) to see my movie. Like, please. I beg of you. It's an actual really great movie, too. So... (laughs) Don't even do it just for him. Uh, It's good to see you, man, as always. (laughs) Good to see you. (laughs) And so ends another edition of Happy, Sad, Confused. 
Remember to review, rate, and subscribe to this show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm a big podcast person. I'm Daisy Ridley, and I definitely wasn't pressured to do this by Josh. <laughs>